0: Hello friends and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's word would be edifying for you. God bless. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John 19. We've been walking through the book of John now for quite some time, and we started in John chapter 1, verse 1. We've gone through many, many, many verses and chapters, and today we come to John 19. Um, this is a passage that I have been, for the past several weeks, anticipating preaching, but at the same time um, dreading preaching for several weeks now. And I know that's a really weird thing for a pastor to say, I've been dreading preaching a certain passage. I'm going to tell you why. You know, I often say, in fact, I think maybe more often than not, I'll say towards the end of our service that you should never leave this place discouraged or beaten up because though the word confronting your sin should, yes, it should wreck you. Yes, you should feel beaten up in some ways. But ultimately, when we leave this place, we should walk out of this place resting in the gospel that Christ's love overcomes your sin and overcomes my sin. And so, yes, while we're confronted with great sorrow in this place, and you we use the, the colloquial term stepping on your toes, right? Yes, it's 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 uncomfortable, and sometimes we feel oppressed by the word in some ways. Ultimately, we leave this place joyful, not sorrowful, because we rest in the good news of the gospel. Now, that being said, here's the thing. When I read this passage a few weeks ago in anticipation of this morning, I read it a few times. That's kind of the first phase of my sermon prep is to just read the passage several times over and over and just sort of let it uh, marinate in my heart. And when I did that on the second or third time I read it, I started to read it slower and slower and then I just started to weep because this is maybe uh, one of the saddest passages in the Bible. It's sad. It's really sad. Um, It's not a a passage that just particularly sparks a sense of joy. The picture of Jesus in my head when I read about his sentencing and the trial that is before him, the picture of Jesus in my head that I get from this, it makes me sad. Even still, my goal this morning is the same that it is every morning. That God would confront you with the nastiness of who you are without Christ, but that he would comfort you with how beautiful you are because of him. You are a horrible sinner. Jesus is a better Savior. And so as we read this morning, it's, it's a sad passage, all right? But walk with me as we arrive at a place that is comforting and encouraging, all right? Let's read together. John 19, verses 1 through 16. John 19, 1 through 16. And we're really going to cut verse 16 in half this morning. This is what John writes. Then Pilate But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Many of you were here last week and some of you were not. Uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm just going to summarize some of the things we talked about last week because these first seven verses are sort of repetitive and, and revisiting some important themes For one thing, we looked at last week that Jesus is exactly where he intends to be, which is a really weird thing for me to say. Jesus is exactly where he intends to be. Jesus tells Pilate in the passage we looked at last week, the passage right before this, that, hey, if I wasn't where I was supposed to be, and if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting to have me freed from this place. And the heavy implication from that is that Jesus is exactly where he wants to be and where he intends to be. He right after that says, I am here. I came to this world, I was born, and I lived in this world to bear witness to the truth, which is immediately followed by what that truth is. And that is that Barabbas, the greatest criminal among them, is released, while the greatest innocent man among them is crucified, killed, going to be murdered. And that's the truth, right? The Barabbas, the criminal, is set free because the Son of God died in his place. And that's the Gospel. That's me and you. That the criminal is freed, and the Jesus, Son of God, perfect man, is sent to his own death. A big theme that we've seen in these past few weeks is this. The innocence of Jesus, contrasting with the guilt of man, but not just that, but also the mockery of the king of kings, which doesn't make any sense that a king would be mocked and shamed, but that's exactly what we see in this passage. These themes are now going to be reinforced as Jesus' trial reaches its conclusion. I'm going to have an outline and notes here in a second, but first, let's look at verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus, this is after the Barabbas exchange, He took Jesus and he flogged him. Now these are not the severe lashings, the cat of nine tails, and the the brutal beatings, the punishment that Jesus will endure prior to crucifixion. This is a much milder beating. It's not mild, but it's milder than what is to come. The context of this seems to be that Pilate's reasoning was to go out there, beat Jesus, present them to him, and garner some sympathy for him so that they will let him go. You see, he saw Jesus as innocent, but he felt the need to also appease these Jewish leaders to try to change their mind is what his attempt is present him as a beaten and defeated a helpless man, a shameful man and maybe they'll back off look at verses 2 and 3 the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe and they came to him saying hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands at this point there will be blood streaming down Jesus' face these uh, these thorns are not the little guys that you maybe see in the woods around your house. They're up to 12 inches long, the bush that these come from. Up to 12 inches long. Inches. I'm not exaggerating that. These are long, long thorns. And I'm not saying each of them was that long. My point is that these weren't things that they just gently laid on Jesus' head. They were sticking into his skull. Okay? His face was marred, it was bloodied, it was running down his face, and it was a graphic scene. His face is swollen because he's been being smacked in the face several times. He's also wearing a purple robe that is of mocking royalty. They're like, hey, you're a king, so drape yourself in this and go out there with your crown on. They're mocking him. They're scorning him. They're shaming him. They say, hail king of the Jews the word and the terminology for this is the same thing that they would say, Hail Caesar. And the, the method that they would do is that they would bow the knee before the king, Caesar. They'd bow the knee before him, and as they would get up, they would say, Hail Caesar. All right? But instead, what they're doing here is they're bending the knee before Jesus, and they're saying, Hail, not Caesar, but Hail, King of the Jews, in a very sarcastic tone, and as they're rising off the floor, they're smacking him across the face. The Son of God, this is happening to him. It's mockery. It's shameful. It goes on, verses 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, blood running down his face. And the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. The way that this phrase is set up, it's not, hey, hey, look at this. The phrase of this is a a sincere, hey, here is the man, okay? This is the guy that you guys wanted me to have crucified. Look at him. Look at this guy. He's shameful. This is the guy that you find so dangerous to you? This guy is so threatening? Can you not see that he's harmless? That he's ridiculous even? Look at this guy. What a loser. You still want me to crucify him? His strategy is to get them to relent, to pull back on the reins, but they don't relent. Verses 6 and 7. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And here's the trick, verse seven. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. Here's the situation. For the Jews to be satisfied, Jesus has to die a blasphemer's death. And either Pilate's going to do it or they're going to do it. But Pilate's job is to keep the peace. And so if Pilate wants to keep the peace, he can't let them go and have mob violence and murder this dude by stoning. Jesus has, in their sense, in their terms, violated Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, which he has committed heresy, according to them, because he has equated himself with God himself. And they're right. He has equated himself with God himself. The only thing is, he's exactly on the money about that. But Pilate doesn't find Jesus guilty. And so he finds himself in a very strange dilemma. And this is the dilemma. Does Pilate save the innocent man but disrupt the region which he has been given and instructed to bring peace or Does Pilate kill the man, who also, by the way, may be divine. They call him the son of God. We'll get to that in a minute. And in doing so, by killing him, appease the people and bring peace, but also potentially anger the gods. He's a pagan man. And so Pilate has this really tough decision on his hands. Do I kill the guy and keep the peace in the nation, or do I preserve the guy and do the right thing, but ultimately have an uproar in my hands? It's a tough call, right? In his terms, it sure was. But not to be lost in this passage, that's kind of background information, but the main point of John is this, the whole book of John, and we've said this before, and that's that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And these situations may be complicated to Pilate, but they're not complicated at all to Jesus. So if you're taking notes, this is going to be our structure this morning. Two personal principles in Jesus' sentencing. Two personal principles in Jesus' sentencing. Number one is that even in tragedy, God is at work. Even in tragedy, God is at work. Jesus isn't passive in this passage. His hands aren't tied. They may be tied, but his hands are far from tied. Even in tragedy, God is at work. So due to this dilemma, Pilate is wrenched, stomach turning. More context over this is not just the fact that these guys had said this about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. But in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, if you have maybe a, a common understanding of what the other gospel authors say about these moments, Pilate's wife has already sent word to him while the, this Barabbas exchange was going on. And she says to Pilate, hey, husband, Pilate, Pontius, I had a dream. And they, they believed heavily in dreams. Okay, dreams they considered to possibly be omens. Hey, I had a dream. You need to stay away from this guy, Jesus. You need to stay away from this guy. He's a righteous man. He's an innocent man. You don't need to do harm to him. And so Pilate, already feeling sick over what she has already said with the Barabbas exchange, now has this bomb dropped in his lap that, hey, he calls himself the son of God. And he's afraid. The Romans were pagans. The more gods, the merrier. They believed that men could be divine, like gods among men. And then this happens, and Pilate is shaken up inside. Look at verse 8, which makes him afraid. They say that when Pilate heard the statement that he has made himself the son of God, it says, verse 8, He was even more afraid. Well, the natural conclusion that Pilate comes to is to approach Jesus about this claim of deity that the Jews have just now accused him of and simply ask Jesus where he came from. Okay, Hey, they're saying that you're the son of God. Where do you come from? Which is what we see in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again, so he's gone out to the Jews. Now he's come back inside to Jesus and he says to him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now to Pilate, it's very obvious that this trial that he initially handled very flippantly is he like, hey, why don't you guys go do what you want? Or making them jump through loopholes and hula hoops and doing all this complicated things to poke at them. This has become a very serious matter to Pilate. He sincerely seeks answers, but Jesus knows the trajectory that this meeting must go. Verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Then Jesus speaks. He answers him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is a little complicated. Verse 11 is is a bit odd, but I'll explain it. This thing about the greater sin. Jesus is probably either referring to one of two people. He's either referring to Judas Iscariot who betrayed him or Caiaphas the high priest. I personally believe that he's talking about Caiaphas. Why are they more culpable than Pilate is the question. The reason that Caiaphas is more culpable than Pilate is because he is the one that initiated this horrible injustice against the only righteous being. In other words, is Pilate guilty? You better believe it. What he's about to do is horrendous. But, Pilate's guilt is relatively passive. He remains responsible for his spineless and politically motivated decision, but he was not the one that initiated this trial or engineered the betrayal of Jesus. But that's not the point. Anch- Pilate anchors his frustration toward Jesus in his own authority over Jesus' destiny. He's bothered by this. Jesus, where are you from? Silence. Are you not going to talk to me? Do you not understand that I have the authority to release you or to say off of his head, Do you not understand that I have the authority to have your soul, your life intact? What an ironic statement. Think about who he's talking to here. Jesus' response in verse 11 is essentially this. Caiaphas delivered me, but this trial would not be in your hands if it wasn't truly under the authority of the Father. That's weighty. You may have a trial in your hands, Pilate but you're not the one in charge. Before I became your pastor, um, we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, but there was a little window between then that Brooke and I lived in Columbus slash West Point, right on the, the line between the two of them. And uh, I would graduated from the seminary, and so I was really, we came down here to redeem the time, spend time with her family that lived in Columbus, and we were waiting for our next uh, ministry assignment. We had we had come down here to kind of figure out what was next, and I'd Got my resume and, and sent it to a few places, and eventually Spring Hill called, and I was so elated and thankful because, man, you guys are just such little gems and delights. I'm just happy to be here with you. But in that eight months that I wasn't your pastor and I wasn't in seminary, uh, I was managing a smoothie place, Juva, in Columbus. Did you guys know that? Some of you knew that. I was managing Juva in Columbus, which is really glamorous work. I know. Sounds very glamorous. I was the general manager over there, which is just a fancy way of saying that I made sure the f- store didn't fall apart, all right? Uh, and certainly, I had authority over Juva. I hired people. I fired people. I set wages. I did all the advertising. I, I mean, I had my hand in a lot of different cookie jars, uh, healthy cookie jars, I should add, okay? But um, I had my hands in a lot of different things, and I had the authority at Juva because I was the GM. I was the general manager at the store, but someone else gave me the job, okay? Okay? Someone else gave me the job, and I was, in cho- I was in charge, I was in control, certainly in some ways. But someone else gave me the job, someone else paid me, someone else owned the building, someone else is somebody that I answered to, someone else determined the day-to-day, and someone else ultimately determined everything in the business. Now i ask you the question, did I have authority? Yes and no, right? Yes, I had authority, but in a much truer sense, I only had as much authority as the one that gave that had authority over me gave me. You see where I'm getting at with this? I had authority, but in a much truer sense, I really didn't have any. And that's Jesus' point. Pilate, you have a trial on your hands. And you do what you do, but you're not ultimately the one in charge here. You're not ultimately the one that's in charge here. Now we know the choice that Pilate is about to make and the terrible tragedy that is about to ensue. Men were guilty of Jesus' murder. But please hear this principle. Innocent Jesus would not have been crucified if it were not ultimately the plan of the Father. Jesus died at the hands of guilty men, but He would not have been crucified if ultimately it was not His Father's authoritative plan. And that's the principle that god uses great tragedy for a greater good we can't always see it but god uses great tragedy for a greater good the absolute most profound and massive example of that is calvary the events that come right after this tragedy led to triumph we looked at philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 i think uh, last week twice and we saw that because jesus bore the wrath Because he conquered the grave. Every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Was the cross a great tragedy? You better believe it. But man, that result is so much sweeter, isn't it? That's a sweet result. Brutal means will come to pass, but what a glorious outcome is on the horizon. And what I want to say to you guys is, not just at Calvary is this the principle, but God uses great tragedy for his greater good. And many of you need to hear this. Listen. Your circumstances may be out of your hands, but they're not out of the Lord's. What you're going through, it may be out of your hands. In fact, it is. But it's not out of the Most Highs. Romans eight twenty-eight. it's a verse that you may know. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who called according to His purpose. That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? One thing that I've come to learn as I've grown in my faith is that your greatest moments of spiritual growth will be in the moments that your faith is tried by fire. Your greatest moments of spiritual growth will be the moments that your faith is tried by fire. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's exactly what Peter compares it to. He says, your faith is like gold, but gold's dirty sometimes. And it needs to be smashed when it's really, really hot in order to smash out the fiery impurities that are within it. The dirt, the nastiness. And that principle is so true. That fire has a purification within it, doesn't it? Your moments of greatest spiritual growth will be in the moments that your faith is tried by fire. When the loved one is in the hospital, you lean on the healer, don't you? When money is tight, You call on the provider, don't you? When the burden of sin is heavy and you're up in arms and you're at rock bottom, you rest in the giver of grace. When you feel lonely, man, especially in the holidays, you call on the church that He's given you and on the Father who promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you feel like a failure as a parent, you feel great comfort and the one that is truly in control of your children's hearts. When depression feels like an inescapable pit, you lean on the lifter of your head. Great trials. Greater glories. Psalm 3, verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. It's one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. Several people in this room are hurting this morning. That's the facts. That's reality, and we don't want to sugarcoat that. Many of you guys are hurting this morning, and maybe you're the only one that knows. But God doesn't rest in the midst of your tragedy. He intends to grow you. And I think the appropriate response to that is to ask Him to show you how. God, how are you using this horrible trial in my life to teach me? to grow me, to seek the answer. God, are you testing my patience? God, are you testing my love for someone? God, are you you testing just my faith? And submitting to him in faith and receiving that instruction. Even in tragedy, God is at work. And it's certainly the case at Calvary. Second personal principle in Jesus' sentencing. Second personal principle in Jesus' ascending thing is number two with my daily choices, who do I hail as king? With my daily choices, who do I hail as king? This statement of Pilate's subservient authority really must have had an impact on Pilate because his intentions really begin to shift in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Jesus says this thing to him. Check yourself on your authority, essentially. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. A quick history lesson. Pilot, Pontius Pilate was not Caesar himself, he wasn't this great king he was a governor of sorts, he was a Roman prefect, which is just another word for, in our tongue would be a common understanding of saying, a governor of a region, his region was Judea which was most uh, most of the main region within the, 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 the nation, the people group of Israel it was especially part of Jerusalem, uh, it was just south of Galilee, and so Pilate was in control of this region, and so he ultimately yes, he's in control of this region, but he has a boss, he has an authority over him and that authority is caesar the jews here are trapping pilate into a favorable verdict for them these guys are not idiots they're pretty smart guys and so they see a way to sort of morph and move this discussion in a way that's going to gain them a favorable verdict you see what they're saying is hey jesus has admitted to being a king he's admitted that you came out here and you said that he's called himself a king he's talked about his own kingdom and so if he calls himself a king Pilate, if you serve Caesar, he has no choice. You have no choice but to either crucify him or you yourself be guilty of calling yourself a king. You see, you have to follow your own law. And he ha- you have a king on your hands. And so you've got to punish this guy who's calling himself the king. If you don't, you're making yourself king and you're the one that's insubordinate against Caesar. You see, they're trapping him in their logic here. They're trapping him and trying to get a favorable verdict out of him. The person that was Caesar at the time wasn't Julius Caesar. The position of Caesar was named after him. Caesar at the time was a guy named Tiberius Caesar. And this guy was known to be quick to drop the hammer for even the slightest suspicion against his subordinates. Okay, So follow the logic here. If Pilate failed to convict a man on well-substantiated charges put forward by the Sanhedrin, who, by the way, was the highest court of their land, they've all been together, they've heard Jesus commit this blasphemy in their ears, and so if they have all heard this, well-substantiated charges, how would that look? Pilate could be stripped of his power, he could be arrested, or worse, he could be killed for insubordination against Caesar. And so, I think sometimes, look, Caesar is not, or or Pilate is not without guilt here, but you got to understand, he's in a very difficult position. He's in a very difficult position. If he lets Jesus go, he's got a big problem on his hands. And if he doesn't, he's got a big problem on his hands. If you were watching this moment on the big screen, if this was a movie, this would be the suspenseful moment. What's the move? What's Pilate going to do? Difficult situation on his hands. Will he do the right thing and pay for it? Or will he do the wrong thing to protect his own skin? Well, we know the end of the, the ending of the story, don't we? Let's keep going. 13 and 14. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Now, at this point, Pilate is understandably aggravated. Okay, The Jews are committing extortion against him. Let's call it what it is. They're committing extortion against him. They're bribing him, in a sense, and blackmailing him to get a favorable verdict. He takes another jab at them once again by introducing Jesus as their king. This is a guy with a massive ego. And these are the guys with massive egos. And he says, here's your king right here. Jabbing at them once again. Verses 15 and 16. They cried out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Again, a jab. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now the Jews in this audience, chief priests and high officials and many others, no doubt, they knew their Bibles. They knew the Old Testament. For thousands of years, Israel had a major problem, and that was that they had been given God as their true king, and yet they were perpetually rejecting God as their true king. I want to point out two verses to you guys to point this out. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Um Judges 8.23, the judge of God's people is a guy named Gideon. He's not their king, okay? He's their judge, a viceroy over them. He's their ki- or their judge. And they go to Gideon and they say, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And this is his response. Gideon said to them, Judges 8.23, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In other words, he's your king, I ain't it. Another example, Israel demanded an earthly king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They demanded it of God's prophet Samuel, and yet he would not yield to this demand as he recognized God as their true king. And God's reply to Samuel when they're demanding it is this. First Samuel 8, 7 says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And we see this theme repetitively over and over. We want Saul. Give us David. Give us Solomon. Give us kings after kings after kings after kings. Because we want to be like the other nations. We reject God as our king. Give us earthly kings. What I, what, the reason I say that is that I want to point out the irony of verse 15 in chapter 19. They cried out, Away with him, away with them. God, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them: Look, shall I crucify your king? Pilate spoke truer than he realized. God's people were introduced to God in the flesh, their king, and yet they once again rejected Him as their king. In this action, they are committing the sins of countless Jews before them, and that is making someone or something their king that is not God, who is their only true king. Guys, listen. This was the sin that led to Calvary. But this rejection of God as king is at the heart of every sin that you will ever commit. Rejection of God as king is at the heart of every sin that you will ever commit. Sin is by its nature a rejection of God as king as we replace him with someone or something else, typically number one right here, yourself. It's a replacement of God as king. God, listen, I know that your word says this, but I reject that in favor of this because it's what I want right now. In other words, I'm the king, you're not. It's at the heart of every sin. God, I know that your word encourages me to go and have a quiet time, to spend intimate time with you, but this other thing, it serves what I want more. I want sleep more. I want television more. I want social media more. Who's the king? God, I know that your word says that I shouldn't lust after the, opposite, or after the opposite sex, but everyone looks at pornography. And I know that you say that it's this way, but this is what I want more in this moment. And I'm the king. God, I know that I should reconcile with so-and-so over there, but I'm waiting for them to apologize to me first because I'm the king. God, I know that it's technically gossip for me to say this thing, but they really just need prayer. And so I'm going I'm to say that it's a prayer request, When really I just want to be the source of information. You want to know why? Because I'm the king. And it doesn't matter what you want. It matters what I want. God, I know that I need to be in Sunday school. I need to plug into Bible study. I know I need discipleship in my life, but I just feel awkward, and those situations just aren't for me because ultimately I'm the king. You hear the common denominator, right? God, I know I should break up with this person. But they really need me to stay on the right path. And I'm the king. So I know that I can lead them in that way. Even though this is what you say. God, I know that I need to be baptized, but it isn't what saves you. And ultimately, I've kind of reasoned my way out of it and talked my way out of being obedient because ultimately I'm the king. With your daily choices, who are you hailing as king? Who are you hailing as king. Guys, Satan has been talking humans into rejecting their king since the Garden of Eden. There's nothing new under the sun. This has been his tactic for a long time. Sin is no small thing. I want you guys to understand this. We look at the Jews in this passage. And, and this is the part that just, it breaks you up. We have no king but Caesar. What? You go read your Bible. And just see how much God has done for this people group. Not to mention delivering a Messiah to them that's standing at them bloodied and marred. We don't have a king. Caesar's our king. You read that, and you look at these Jewish guys, and you're like, man, what a bunch of jerks. What a bunch of losers. What a bunch of idiots. Did they not see what was right in front of them? But listen, people. When you sin. It is a heavenward chant in the face of the one true king of kings. Hail Caesar. Hail Caleb. Hail me. The throne belongs to me. We point the finger and we wag our fingers at these guys and scoff at them, but we commit the same wicked corruption, scoffing at Jesus every moment that we betray him as our king. Guys, sin is no small thing it should break your heart. But this story of tragedy is a story of triumph. I'm going to reread verse 14. Check this out. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. That's a really weird detail to throw in there, right? It was about the sixth hour. So he said to the Jews, Behold your king. I'll point this out for a reason. Isn't it strange? It just jumps out. John drops this weird detail in there. By the way, it was the time of the preparation of the Passover. It was around noon. Behold your king. He resumes the narrative. What is the time of the preparation of the Passover? About noon on this day, this Friday, was the time that uh, lambs, the best lambs of each household, were beginning to be slaughtered. They were shedding their blood to commemorate the Passover. If you don't know what the Passover is, the Passover was a time in Israel's history, the Jewish people's history, when they say they saw God's greatest, to this date, His greatest uh, action of salvation. It was, hey, we're going to celebrate the Passover to be celebrating the fact that our God is a God who saves. And so at noon on the day of preparation, they went and gathered their lambs, and they began to cut their throats and shed their blood that we may celebrate that our God is a God of salvation. And guys, listen. This is the part, this is the part that made me weep. Because as they're preparing the lambs for slaughter, the Lamb of God, our King's body, was being prepared to be slaughtered. wasn't just sheep that were bloody this day it was the lamb of god and so when we read in verse 15 verse 14 when he says to the jews behold your king for a reader of john that should echo something and that's where he started this book verse 29 of chapter 1 Remember what John said, John the Baptist said, when Jesus showed up on the scene. He didn't say, behold your king. He said, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover Lamb was prepared for death that day because we need to be reminded that our God is a God of salvation. Our God saves. And that's the gospel. That you and I are wicked. Chanting right in his face. Hail Caesar. And he has not ceased to be your king to this day. The lamb was prepared for death that day. Blood running down his face. A mocking purple robe draped draped over his shoulders. But maybe it was way truer than they thought it was, wasn't it? He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. And what I want you all to understand today is that God uses tremendous tragedy for more tremendous glory. And what I want you to do in response is to ask him to show you this. God, in my circumstances, in my difficulties, in the bad things in my life, God, show me that you are still king. Show me that my tragedy doesn't mean that you're the loser. Show me that it means that you're on the throne, that you have a purpose for me, that you're growing me in the midst of tragedy. And guys, here's the thing. If He's the Lamb of God and He has taken away your sins today, don't you dare sing songs in this worship place. Bored, lackluster, apathetic. Because if He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you better believe it with the way, everything that you say and everything that you think. He is the King. And He deserves glory. And He deserves worship. If He's taken your sins away, hail Him as King with your decisions. Make war on sin. Hate sin. And love people because he died for them too. And if this is your first time hearing this message, the good news of the gospel, or if it's your thousandth time hearing the message of the gospel, and you've never made him your king, and you've never professed your faith and trust in Christ, make today the day that you make him the king of kings and the Lord of lords, not just of the people that are around you, but your king today. He is the only one that can do it. You're not worthy on your own. You were chanting to him, Hail Caesar. And he says, I love you in any way. I've come to shed my blood for you. Let's pray and give him the glory today. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.